I'm Ben Horton. I'm Agnes Frimston, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hello, Agnes. Hello, Ben. How or should are you? I say, buenos dias? <laughs> yes. Amigo. I have been away. Because for once, <laughs> it is not me that has been away. I've been here. I've been in the office. Someone has been on holiday. I haven't had a holiday for a year and a half. At last. That a year is, and a half. Is that true? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Spent me. all of last year going to Scotland. Not holidays. No, certainly not. Where did you go? <laughs> I went somewhere warm. Did you go on a train? No, I didn't go on a train. I flew. You flew? I flew. Okay. Yeah, nice. it was very exciting. Um, I am aware that sometimes these intros are just where we've been. Yeah. <laughs> Tours of the world. No, it was good. I read lots of books and What did you read? Loads. What did I read? I read um, Caroline Credo Perez's Invisible Women, uh-huh. which is great. I read The Hunting Party, which is really fun. I read Restless by William Boyd. Oh, yeah. Cracker. Classic. Cracker. Read some of the Gal- Galbraith oh, novels. Yeah. And I read uh, Joel Golby's Brilliant, 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 Brilliant. All right, five brilliants. Anyway. Any good? Yeah. <laughs> if, you, if you like Vice writer Joel Golby. Was it brilliant? <laughs> you'll enjoy Brilliant, 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 Brilliant. How many there are? Many brilliants. Yeah. Okay, cool. That's prolific, actually, for a week. Fair yeah, play. Well, I didn't really do anything else. Okay. <laughs> like, I slept and I read and then I played mini golf. <laughs> Sounds just like paradise. <laughs> it's this kind of utopian existence that you found. There was a bath outside then. It was dreamy. A bath outside. <laughs> I don't know what I feel about that actually. That's a bit exposed for me. No, you're fully clothed. I mean, you're clothed in the bath. Oh, okay. You're so in it's swimming a hot costumes. Tub. Yeah, it's, all, it's okay, like a hot nice, tub. Nice, yeah, nice. sorry. It's a hot tub. <laughs> <laughs> An outside bath. <laughs> what a hot tub is. Gosh. Oh, well, okay. We do entertain you. No, anyway. um, but what have I missed, Ben? What have you missed? Um, well, I mean, I actually completed my emails yesterday, Agnes. That was one of the most exciting that things. That's not happened. something anybody's ever yeah, done. You can't complete emails. emails. It's like it's like You've reaching responded to level every single email. Office. Yeah, I have zero emails in my inbox. Fuck off. Zero emails. Oh my god. Either means I'm fantastically adept at office. Or <laughs> it's not a, it's not a computer game. Or <laughs> you can't win office. Or I'm actually just deeply unpopular and <laughs> no one wants to email me anymore. They're, they're done with this guy. This guy Ben, he never replies. I'm just gonna forward you so much stuff. CC see me into everything. Your entire day of emails. No, I feel so I feel very uh, very worthy. I'm very impressed. Okay, nice. But we should probably get on to some subjects that actual experts know stuff about. Yeah, so who did who we you speak to, to this as week? As is our want. This week I spoke to Keir Giles. Ooh. <laughs> you always do this. I know when I don't it's mean good. it. It's I don't really mean great. it in like cool. a sarcastic like, way. <laughs> genuinely exciting. Um who is a senior consulting fellow in the Russia Eurasia programme here at mm-hmm. Chatham House. And we've actually not looked at Russia that much on the pod. We haven't, have we? It's been a bit now. of a gap. I'm yeah. sorry. So we've done he's just written a book. Mm-hmm. Um on Russia and why it confronts the West. Okay. It's called Moscow Rules and it's part of the Chatham House Insights series. And basically we had a chat about that and what motivates, what drives Russian foreign policy and how Western countries in, in Europe and, and North America should be responding to mm-hmm. Russia in a way that apparently they've not been. Right. So, okay. yeah, so it was really interesting. But who did you speak to? This week, I spoke to Marianne Schneider-Petzinger, 
who is the Geoeconomics Fellow in the US and America's program here at Chatham House, about her new paper, US-EU Trade Relations in the Trump Era, mm. which is available now. And it's an interesting chat. It's quite um, well, very appropriate at the moment with Brexit. But it's quite it's quite a dense, weighty topic, trade deals. They're very complicated. But, um, That's interesting because I feel like there's a perception in the media, at least, that it's often to, oh, we'll just do a trade deal. Yeah, oh my God, no. Yeah. It's so complicated. And who's <laughs> in charge of them and, you know, <clears throat> all of this sort of thing. But yeah, and we had an interesting chat. Awesome. Great. Well, let's have a listen. Great. So I'm here with Marianne Schneider-Petzinger, who is the Geoeconomics Fellow at the US and Americas Programme. And we're here to discuss her new report that's just come out called US-EU Trade Relations in the Trump Era, Which Way Forward? Thanks so much for joining us. Obviously, US-EU trade relations, we're talking about it a lot at the moment, especially with Brexit coming up. But could you give us a sort of general overview as to like how, how have they been more broadly? Well, in general terms, they're very solid, very extensive, even though we're always talking about the rise of China. The U.S. and the EU are still each other's largest bilateral investment and trade partners. And overall, really, the partnership between the United States and the EU is the largest bilateral economic relationship in the world. So that just means, again, economic ties are very strong and extensive. And there have also been repeated efforts to formalize that trade and investment relationship. So back in 2007, Transatlantic Economic Council was set up, and then you might recall in 2013, the launch or the formal launch of the negotiations for the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, which was quite controversial, but um, you know involved highly sensitive issues. And negotiations for that were in trouble even before the election of President Trump. But with the new administration, the TTIP negotiations essentially went into the freezer. Now the caucus about, well, we have... In July of last year, rapprochement, United States and the EU are now in the phase of re-entering perhaps new trade negotiations, but it's very clear that this is not going to be a TTIP 2.0. In the meantime, though, there is also a lot of hiccups, perhaps, understatement, but a lot of tension when it comes to the imposition of tariffs and happy to, to go into that. Yeah, well, I wanted to, I did want to ask you about TTIP, but before then, so by and large, it's sort of been a smooth would you say like a smooth escalation as a relationship like it's it's always been quite constant yes for the most part you know economic and trade and financial flows have been been very solid again there have been efforts to formalize that that haven't really led anywhere but again there is a lot of progress that can be built upon and what and do you it's mean only by formalize? formalize in terms of actually having an agreement in place that would perhaps strengthen those ties even more. But tariffs are already quite low. So even though some of the estimates for TTIP you know, pointed to positive economic effects, increasing GDP, it was 0.3, 0 0.4 percentage points that that would be raised by. So again, positive, but not huge. Mm. Um, however, formalizing those relationships would also go beyond the pure economic relationships. It'd be much more about strengthening and re-cementing the political ties and perhaps also, importantly, provide a way for the US and the EU to set the rules of the road 
and update some of the rules to make trade and investment fit for the 21st century and also to you know, set the rules vis-a-vis other strategic competitors, China, for example. So to ask you about TTIP, for our listeners who maybe don't know what that is, what was TTIP and why did it go, yeah, why was it such a sort of catastrophe? Slightly? So TTIP, the, trade and, uh, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, again, that was the negotiations that took place between 2013 and 2016 between the United States and the EU. And here I should say that it's the European Commission that negotiates on behalf of all 28 currently <laughs> EU member states. And again, initially, the idea was that that could move forward quite quickly. There was always talk about this can be done on a single tank of gas. But again, we've now seen 15 rounds of negotiations. And in part, there were sticking points about agriculture in particular, about whether um, investment dispute settlement should be included in there. But there were also concerns about the way the negotiations were conducted. Transparency, for example, the engagement of stakeholders. So a lot of issues that, that came together and really made progress difficult. And then come the Trump administration or the election of President Trump in 2016 and then you know officially into office in 2017, that's when um, both sides decided to put in negotiations into the freezer, as Cecilia Malmstrom, the EU Trade Commissioner, has called it. But nonetheless, both sides haven't officially declared talks to be dead. They haven't advanced. And again, in this current environment, we're about to see perhaps um, a new formal negotiation. This is not going to be TTIP 2.0. Mm-hmm. The talk is now to leave those controversial issues out and to um, make this a much more narrow agreement. But again, both sides at the moment are not clear about what to include in any further trade agreements. And obviously Britain is leaving the EU. What does that mean for sort of US-EU trade at the moment, excepting us, but what does it mean for those two big, well, allies? Like, How will it might potentially affect it? I didn't cover that a lot in the paper because yeah. it really is a topic <laughs> in and by itself that I have covered elsewhere. <laughs> but um, in terms of what it means for the EU-US negotiations, I mean, the UK has always been a pro-free trade voice. Mm-hmm. So with that, the EU loses that voice. It also means that perhaps the EU going forward is less attractive for the United States because you know, it loses part of the market. And um, the huge question is going forward to what extent the UK will still be a gateway to the EU 27 market. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also other ramifications about you know whether the EU can speak with a single voice beyond the UK leaving. Um, there's issues around German-Franco divisions, perhaps. There's the elections of the European Parliament coming up in May that will have implications for the setup of, or the, the composition, rather, of the European Parliament. And then later this year, we'll also see a new European Commission. And the European Commission is you know, leading the negotiations. So that, again, could have implications for bilateral talks between the United States and the EU. And... Because we mentioned before that formalising agreements, you know, is actually often quite political, isn't it? I mean, how can you separate politics from from trade agreements? You can, and it's particularly difficult with the current US administration. What the Trump administration has done is to not just look at trade and security, for example, in separate silos, but to link those two issues together. 
and the European uh, Union and its member states and also other countries around the world, they're not really prepared to look at those issues mm-hmm. through that single lens and are a bit perplexed, perhaps, <clears throat> to to respond. Well, they can't either, can they, surely? Because they are, you know, like you say, they're a group of countries. They've all got different political beliefs, On whereas Trump can do that because he's just one man. Yeah, so it has, you know, implications for, again, the ability of the EU to speak with one voice. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, there's also implications about what it means for the future of the trading system and at the heart of it, the World Trade Organization. Because the the tariffs that the Trump administration has imposed, for example, with regards to steel and aluminum, mm. and more importantly, even the threat of tariffs on cars, those are justified in the name of national security. Mm-hmm. And there's a huge question about to what extent car imports from the EU are really a threat to U.S. national security. Same for steel and aluminum imports from the EU, from Japan, from Mexico, from Canada. Mm. And that was being dealt with through the dispute settlement process at the WTO. But it has also led to the imposition of retaliatory tariffs. So again, it's a political response to then decide whether to respond and how to respond to those tariffs. And how different is Donald Trump's sort of trade policy from from the last administration's? It's certainly very different in the substance, but also the tone. And the key difference is that the Trump administration is much more interested in bilateral relationships. So we've we've kind of seen a shift in that and perhaps an understanding of the Trump administration that, again, in terms of negotiating an agreement with the EU, it has to be an agreement that is negotiated with the European Commission because mm-hmm. the European Commission speaks on behalf of all currently 28 EU member states. Whereas before there was talk within the administration to strike a bilateral deal with Germany, for example, or to you know, try to offer special concessions to France on the condition of France leaving the European Union. And that, again, also undermines politically the European Union and the entire um, unanimity that, you know, behind it. Um, The other aspect, and I've touched upon this before, is that the Trump administration approaches it much more from a um, transactional approach. So again, it is um, linking trade and security matters. And that that is key. It's also, in terms of the rhetoric, changed significantly from previous administrations. You know, Trump has called the EU a foe on trade. He's also said that the EU was formed in order to take advantage of us, as in America, on trade. So um, you know, that is very provocative, mm-hmm. but it's also factually incorrect. <laughs> the Europeans have um, responded to that you know, quite strongly. Um, there's also, in terms of the, the focus of the Trump administration, a misplaced focus on the trade balance. And on that front, um, let me point out that the U.S., runs a significant trade deficit with the EU. It's about $100 billion, um, as of 2017. And that is largely driven by the United States trade deficit with Germany. Right, so okay. Germany is very much at the center of Trump's concerns when it comes to trade with the EU. And is that specific goods? or? It's mostly about trade and goods. However, in the case of Germany, the United States has a trade deficit when it comes to goods and services. Okay, right. But mostly for the Trump administration, it's a focus about the the trade deficit in goods, totally ignoring that the United States actually has an overall surplus. 
so there's that. There is also the Trump administration's, you know, dissatisfaction with disparate tariff levels. So here the EU imposes 10% um, tariffs on U.S. cars, whereas the other way around, it's um, 2.5%. And, and again, is that is car tariffs and with Germany being a leading producer of cars, it puts Germany at the focus. Yeah. Why is, for somebody who doesn't really understand trade economics, why is it that, that those tariffs have been chosen? Because that does feel like a different, you know, quite a significant weighting. It does feel, um, you know, there is a, that there is a significant difference. And the EU has said that they're willing to reduce those tariffs actually to zero, which Trump had demanded in the past. But all of a sudden, when the EU was ready to make that offer, he was no longer interested in it. Right. And it also ignores that the US actually has higher tariffs when it comes to trucks. Okay. So again, overall, I think you know things do balance out. But you're absolutely right that at the moment there is this um, imbalance in the tariff levels that both sides have acknowledged and are willing to work upon. And there's this, the, the, sort of the nature of trade deals is that they are negotiated individually. So is it that they just all sort of stack up rather than being done as a huge group? Does that make sense? Yes. So, you know, taking a step back here, usually trade deals have been conducted um, at the multilateral level. Yeah. So within the framework of the World Trade Organization and previously the um, you know GATT General Agreement of Tariffs and Trades because the WTO ca- only came into existence in 1995, and we've had previous rounds of trade liberalization again at the level of um, engaging multilaterally, but because over time the low f- hanging fruits were harvested and more and more countries joined the WTO, it's mm-hmm. become much more difficult to reach a consensus. Right. And so most recently with the Doha round, that's just been, you know, frozen and stuck over the issue of agricultural products. What's yeah. happened then is that some countries decided to move things forward on a bilateral level or plurilateral, so you know, smaller group of countries coming together. And they to are allowed to do that. They are allowed to do that, again, if it covers substantially all trade. Okay. And um, <laughs> sorry about all the No, the no, no, it's really it's really interesting. Here. It's just but, it's complicated. Um, so if, if they pretty much cover um, substantially all trade, which means perhaps an agreement that doesn't cover agriculture between the United States and the EU would perhaps be not consistent with the WTO rules. Right, okay. And also countries that negotiate deals bilaterally would have to notify the World Trade Organization. But it is it is possible to do that. And the question is, you know, whether those bilateral deals help or hinder progress at the multilateral level. To some extent, you could say, you know, it's no longer necessary then for all countries to come together. At the other time, you could also say it's more of a building block. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the verdict is still out. <laughs> and so going back to sort of Trump and the way that he's using trade at the moment, historically, has there been a president in the past who's done something similar or is this sort of quite new? Well, I think, you know, Reagan to some extent mm-hmm. um, has done in the sense of imposing tariffs and using that as a negotiating tactic. Um, more importantly, perhaps, is also that um, really what's at the heart of um, Trump's concerns about trade is the implications his actions and his rhetoric have for the multilateral trading system, in mm-hmm. particular what it means for the future of the WTO. And here, one of um, Trump's key 
points has been the blocking of um, appellate member bodies. And that's, again, quite complicated. But what essentially has happened that this appellate body is the highest court, if you will, at the WTO to respond to cases. And who sits and on that? It's it's usually seven members. Mm-hmm. They're elected for two terms up to four years. And what is happening right now is that currently, because of the US's blocking of members of the appellate bodies, we're down to three. And by the end of the year, we're down to two. So, so three just, is the minimum of the system to function. We're right. barely functioning in a couple of months' time. So does everybody have to elect, sorry, just... Uh, does everybody have to elect all of the members or everybody they have to reach consensus as to who can sit on the WTO it? is a consensus organization. Yeah. And that really is why it's so difficult to increasingly come to a consensus. We have now 164 members of the WTO. Quite a lot of people who it's need quite to a agree. Lot of people. <laughs> yeah. But my point was with regards to the WTO that this blocking of members to the appellate body mm. has happened under previous administrations. Right, okay. So it has happened under Obama, yeah. for example. He was the first one to kind of start this process. Thanks, Obama. In the sense, this is nothing new, Mm. but the Trump administration is willing to push the U.S. concerns much, much further. And we're also now at a much more critical point in time. Right. Okay. So that is another key difference. Yeah. Interesting. And then in the sense of, you know, the imposition of tariffs. On the one hand, the Trump administration is using traditional tools and tariffs much more aggressively. But they are at the same time also using fairly unusual um, statutes and, and, and sections of trade laws to go about forcing change. So again, the, the tariffs on steel and aluminum in the name of national security, this is something that we haven't really seen before. I mean, that is a... And what a, is his actual defense of, you know, why is that a threat to national security? What's his sort of argument for that? The argument is that it undermines the U.S. industrial base and that really, you know, again, economics and security are so closely linked that um, the efforts would be to bring back manufacturing in particular to the United States. And um, yeah, most Democrats, but also leading Republicans in Congress and obviously countries around the world totally um, believe that this is um, not a sound and, and very valid argument, in particular because the countries that have been hit by those tariffs on steel and aluminum are the United States' closest allies. So it's meant to target China, but China is not among the top 10 source countries of, of steel coming into the United States. Right. It's Canada, it's Mexico, it's Japan, it's the EU. So the national security argument is, is very, very thin, very tenuous. Mm. I, I mean, I remember when uh, TTIP was being was coming through the UK um, Parliament, and how difficult our MPs found it to understand negotiating a trade deal because they haven't, you know, we haven't had any trade negotiators really since like the seventies. They're all in Europe. Yeah, for the last forty years. Yeah. Last 40 years. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you about Brexit. Lastly, how do you think we're going to cope on that front? I mean, Liam Fox keeps telling us that we're going to have all these amazing trade deals. Well, first of all, there's a lot of uncertainty around Brexit. There's a lot of uncertainty whether the UK will really be able to conduct its independent trade policy. But assuming that, um, you know, happens and is possible, then yes, 
there could be negotiations for a trade agreement between the United States and the United Kingdom. And to some extent, there's been a lot of preparatory work already. So the United States has expressed an interest. They have notified Congress of their intent. They've also just released negotiating objectives for a trade agreement with the UK. Surprisingly, those are very similar to the United States objectives for trade agreement with the EU mm-hmm. and also Japan. So, you know, I don't think that the um, UK would actually get a preferential treat, um, a trading deal, even though there is a special relationship in you know, votes. <laughs> but again, that could move forward. Mm-hmm. But trade agreements are really about rules and regulations. They're not so much about tariffs anymore. And that really means that For the United States to be able to negotiate with the UK, it needs to know what the UK's future relationship with the EU will be like and to what extent the UK's rules and regulations will still be aligned with that of the EU. And potentially that could put the UK in a position where it kind of has to choose. It's not always black or white, but there could be instances where the UK has to choose. Would it be more closely aligned with EU standards or with US standards? And if so, in what direction will it get pulled? Because we're sort of, sorry, my stomach's rumbling. Um, we're sort of having this conversation at the moment about uh, uh, food, aren't we? And chicken, for example. Exactly. Chlorinated chicken. Chlorinated Here we go chicken. again. Exactly. Because, you know, it, that, these things, are they're so complicated, and but they do come down to actually like people's everyday experiences. Um, and like, yeah, it's it, it does seem to be sort of about who who you want to be aligned with, really, yeah. rather than the economics. Again, it's, it's about that, and that's also why it's so important that you know negotiations are conducted transparently and fully engage all stakeholders, because those issues are very, very sensitive. Mm. And again, we could just see a TTIP 2.0 in the sense of that many of the issues that were raised and many of those concerns were legitimate are going to be just resurfaced. Yeah. But do you think that we've got the expertise to do it? There is certainly a lot of build-up of trying to get at expertise mm. and you know, building expertise from those that were previously engaged in Brussels, but also bringing in lawyers, political scientists, economists. So there is certainly you know, an interest and a strong effort to increase that. But the question is, to what extent you know, negotiations can really be conducted if there's also so many competing priorities for the UK, because it's not just negotiating with the United States. It's first and foremost also rolling over those agreements that the EU has already. And then the question is, you know, should the US be your first priority or not? And um, at the same time where the United States has very much put an America first agenda on the table and has vowed to send the toughest negotiators. So it's um, it, it's possible. I think there are certainly benefits of a potential US-UK free trade agreement. But I think, again, it's very critical for both sides to be realistic, both in the sense of what can be achieved, mm-hmm. but also the timeline. Well, fingers crossed. <laughs> Thank you so much, Marianne, for coming to speak to us. And um, you can read Marianne's paper on the Chatham House website now.
Right, so today I'm joined by Keir Giles, who, among other things, has been a pilot, a movie actor, um, an award-winning radio journalist, and perhaps most excitingly, a senior consulting fellow in the Russia and Eurasia programme at Chatham House. Keir's new book is titled Moscow Rules, What Drives Russia to Confront the West? And it's part of the Chatham House Insights book series. Keir, thanks very much for joining us today. Now, you're welcome. I suppose, Ben, uh, for this podcast, I have to agree with you that being a senior consulting fellow in the Russia programme at Chatham House is exciting and fun-packed and not uh, sitting pouring over reams and reams of extremely boring Russian text to try to figure out what they're up to all the time. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like my idea of a good time as well. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but great. Okay, cool. So let's start with the book. What was the main motivation for writing it and kind of what's your central thesis? Well, I realized that um, over the years that I've been working with Chatham House and before that, uh, working on Russia and trying to study and try to explain Russia for getting on for you know several decades now, uh, I and people like me have been saying the same things over and over again, and we're getting this really strong feeling of deja vu. Because whenever people ask us uh, policy questions like, what do we do about Russia and what does Mr. Putin think? Uh, what we found is that we give the same answers time and again because they're the same questions, but they don't actually have any impact on Western policy or British policy towards Russia at all. And so the same mistakes with Russia getting be keep being made over and over again. That's time after time and year after year and actually decade after decade. So it's it's pretty depressing, really. So this is um, getting off my chest the, the lessons of quite a few decades of trying to explain Russia and also suggesting trying to do something a little bit different with Russia, to break out of what we've seen ever since the end of the Cold War, so getting on for 30 years ago, which is a, a repetitive pattern, a repetitive cycle where you have a reset in the relationship. You have a, a return to business as usual. Everything looks great. Everybody's happy. Um, the West and Russia have high hopes for this new relationship. But then shortly afterwards, both sides realize that actually what they want is fundamentally different and fundamentally opposed. So the, the strategic priorities of, of Russia and NATO or Russia and the EU are completely in opposition, and even their understanding of how international relations work, the basic relations between countries, is completely different. And so those high hopes tend to stagnate a little bit, and the shine goes off the relationship, and then there's this period of, of drift and stagnation where each side gets increasingly distant from what the relationship is supposed to be about. It's a little bit like a marriage, especially when one side is trying to pretend that everything's fine, and that's usually the West and not listening to the the increasing frustration and the increasing signals that all is not right coming from the other side, and that's Russia. And eventually, this comes to a head with a big spat, a big crisis in the relationship. And the last couple of times that's happened, it's led to uh, small countries next to Russia being invaded, whether it's Georgia in 2008 or Ukraine in 2014. Trouble is, even though the crisis phase of that relationship gets worse and deeper each time, uh, soon afterwards there's an attempt by the West to have a reset. We say, well, we can't go on you know, not talking to each other. Let's go back to business as usual and try again. And we start the whole cycle all over again. And we've seen this several times since the end of the Cold War, and it becomes incredibly predictable. So about, uh, what is it, seven or eight years ago, um, back end of, of 2011, I wrote a paper, a study for NATO about the relationship between NATO and Russia. It was called the State of the NATO-Russia Reset. 
And already then we could describe exactly how this pattern works. We could point to how many times it had happened over the previous couple of decades. And based on that consistent and stable pattern, we could say, and yes, we're pretty certain that although NATO at the moment is pretending that everything is absolutely fine in the relationship, in fact, they've just declared that they want strategic partnership with Russia. Nevertheless, Russia thinks about it very differently. So we're heading for another crisis and it's going to be worse and deeper than before. And sure enough, just under two years later, we have the events in Ukraine that lead to the seizure of Crimea and, um, and the armed conflict in eastern Ukraine that's still ongoing. So to cut a very long story short, why is the book written? Uh, because we've said the same things about how to deal with Russia over and over again before, because they're not listened to, and therefore, as a result, things just go from bad to worse in the Russia relationship. Is Russia a superpower? <laughs> I don't think even Russia describes itself as a superpower these days. They do like to think of themselves as a great power, but we, we need to be careful how we translate the Russian phrase behind that, because... One of the, the basic defining features about how Russia sees the world and sees its relationship with other states that gets everybody in the West very confused is that they take a very 19th century view of how relations between states work. In effect, they'd like it to be 1914 again. Because then it was great powers that decided the, the fate of the world between them, whether they're in cooperation or competition. And the smaller countries in between basically are, are just uh, pawns in the game to, be, um, to have their, their fates and their foreign and security policy divided and decided between um, the, the big players that each have their own sphere of influence or, uh, or cordon sanitaire around them and basically are running the world. Russia quite lacks that picture. And of course, it's the picture that was preserved throughout the period of the Soviet Union, because unlike all of the other European empires, the British, the French, the Portuguese even, the Russian Empire never really went away except briefly and temporarily. Instead, it was preserved in the form of the USSR and, uh, and Moscow's dominion over Eastern Europe, so that it only arrived at a kind of post-imperial, post-colonial situation very, very recently, in 1991, at the, at the breakup of the USSR. So they've come a lot less far down this mental track of, of getting rid of empire, of the end of colonialism, of realizing that actually those small countries around their periphery should be sovereign and independent. And places like Ukraine should be able to decide their own foreign and security policy and, and decide who they want to be friends with. Thinking about how the West has uh, approached dealing with Russia since the Cold War, do you feel like there has been a transition in terms of how they perceive Russia or are the same policies that they sort of enacted towards the Soviet Union? Are they essentially, is that is that mindset the same? Do we do policymakers still think of Russia as the Soviet Union? Unfortunately not, because if they did, things would be a great deal easier. Okay. Instead, what you have is a, is a fundamental misconception of what Russia is that came to the fore at the, as soon as the USSR collapsed because there was an assumption which at the time was not completely unreasonable that uh, once you lose the, the Soviet flag and the USSR collapses and you change the flag, change the national anthem, then the Russia that emerged from that would actually be seeking to, to rejoin the Western mm -hmm. community of nations as what we think, think of as, uh, as a normal country. Now, unfortunately, that overlooked some key factors about Russia itself, which was that uh, the Soviet system was not really that strange for Russia. It wasn't really a departure from Russian history, from Russian cultural or political or social norms. Instead, it actually just preserved a lot of things that have been true of Russia for a long time. So the basic problem you're facing is that Russia never was a Western nation to begin with. 
never had a tradition of liberal democracy to which it could return. And so after, again, the brief period of euphoria when everybody thinks, oh, we're going to be fine now, those basic contradictions set in again. So if it were the case that, uh, that Western policymakers were to think that actually the Soviet Union was not the strange thing, and instead it's the, the 25 years since the end of the Soviet Union that are the anomaly, then we'd be on a much firmer policy footing because that's a much better guide to how Russia behaves itself, to how it responds to challenges, and actually to how it sees the world and what we need to do about it. Yeah, just to go back to what you, you mentioned earlier about spheres of influence, you mentioned that Russia, in a way, would quite like to have returned to a state where it has a, a sort of cordon sanitaire of kind of buffer zone states around it. Do you have a sense of how far that zone extends? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because at, at different times, obviously, how far Russia has projected its influence into Europe has has differed. So, I mean... Does it want to go up as far as Germany again, or like <laughs> where does that? Do you see what I mean? What I'm... It's it is yes, I know yeah. exactly what you mean. It's a really important question, and it, it's a it's a vital one for European security. In fact, uh, where would Russia feel satisfied um, at extending its dominion, and where would it feel safe and not threatened? And when I say threatened, I mean not just militarily, which is the way most people think of uh, of the, the security threats that are facing Russia, but also economically, because it's not just NATO, but also the EU that poses a problem to Russia if it is incorporating countries that are next to Russia because it poses a threat to the Russian way of doing business. If you introduce into those countries rule of law and open markets and rules-based economies, then that, that is inimical to how the Russian leadership makes money. But yes, the, the question of what would Russia be satisfied with, well, um, why stop at Germany? Uh, are we not thinking instead of the English Channel? It's uh, it is an open question and one which um, which has vexed people not just in the post-Cold War period but also throughout all of the time that Russia has had this expansionist policy into Europe. And that's going back not just through the 20th century but much further again. There's an old um, joke about how the, the only uh, secure Russian border is a border with a Russian soldier standing on both sides of it, which is uh, a key to the old Russian preoccupation that you want to reduce threats by pushing them further away. And in the old days, that would mean military occupation of the territories that are in between. Think back to the last, the second half of the 20th century when Russia was effectively occupying most of Eastern Europe. But now they have other means of pushing those threats further away. They see that other ways than expensive and messy and complicated invasions and occupations are actually sufficient to make sure that their interests prevail in other states. For example, regime change, information warfare, neutralizing the opposition through means other than military invasion. But to come back to the basic question, Russia has always displayed a persistent pattern that it will take as much as is available. So it is not so much a question of what would Russia be satisfied with, because if there are opportunities, Russia will always take them. It is more a question of how to contain the damage that is likely to be caused by Russia trying to meet that ambition and looking for those vacuums of military power, of political will, of will to resist Russian influence, which is absolutely crucial for maintaining the sovereignty of the small countries around Russia. The way that you present it from their side, it, it almost seems like a kind of a logical extension of how they view the world. If you were in the Kremlin, would you be 
proposing the same foreign policy. Well, you said it's a logical extension. And yes, it, it's one thing to bear in mind that uh, so many of the things that make no sense to Western liberal democracies are actually perfectly logical through Russia's own prism of how they view the world and who, through their own internal assessments and uh, and trains of thought about how things work. If you start off from this this basic flawed assumption that uh, that Russia is a great power that's entitled to an empire and because of that it's an attractive target that everybody is queuing up to attack, mm. then you can suffer a confirmation bias. You can look at all the events that are happening around the world and think, yes, that does actually confirm that Western nations are queuing up to subvert and disrupt and dismember Russia. Therefore, we need to defend ourselves assertively against it. It all kind of makes sense if you, if you put it through that, um, that distorting lens of the view from the Kremlin. In terms of the policy advice that, that's actually happening in Moscow, well, without a crystal ball and without, uh, without intelligence sources, of course, we have no idea. But I think we can guess that given the prevailing rhetoric of conflict and war that the, the Russian public's been subjected to from, from Russian state media for longer than most people have been paying attention, actually going back almost a decade now, it would be a, a very brave intelligence analyst in Russia who cared little for his career that would dare to point out that, well, you know, actually, NATO doesn't want to invade us. I just wondered if we could talk about a specific flashpoint in Russia's relations with the West that happened in the last year, which was the case of the attempted assassination of the Skripals in the UK on UK soil. I just wondered if you could explain that episode through what we've been discussing, what was the motivation of Russia to do that and what were they trying to demonstrate? Well, as we're recording this, we're just over one year after the um, the attempted murders of the, the Skripals. Uh, and, of course, the aftermath of that is, is still rumbling on. There are the implications of what that means for UK-Russia relations are, are still strong and uh, even the, the physical clear-up of what's happening has only just been completed. But... When you ask questions like, what does it mean for, for what Russia sees and what does it say about Russian behavior, there is always a trap of um, falling into the temptation to give just one answer. But mm. uh, one of the, the key lessons that um, we have learned the hard way through dealing with Russia is there's rarely just one explanation. So was it the case that this was, uh, as some people have suggested, a rogue operation, that uh, you know the, the senior leadership in the Kremlin was unaware that this might be happening? Almost certainly not. Is it possible that it was uh, badly timed because it was an operation that was sanctioned without a particular time frame? Well, that's a possibility. What we can say for certain is how it's indicative both of the fact that Russia sees itself in a state of conflict with the West in general and the UK in particular, and therefore in a, a relationship where this kind of outrageous action is actually acceptable, and also uh, that they are not too concerned about getting caught. If you look at the, the pattern of Russian measures that have been taken against European countries uh, where they do get caught, the, the measures that they are taking to make sure that they are undetected are very scanty indeed. So it's plain that actually carrying out the mission is a far more uh, important motivating factor than actually pretending Russia didn't do it. And people ask us, are we at war with Russia? Well, no, the UK isn't. But unfortunately, that doesn't stop Russia being at war with us because it, it might take two to tango. It doesn't take two to start a war. And we see that in almost every domain except overt military clashes, Russia is already undertaking hostile actions against this country, whether it's cyber, whether it's targeted assassinations of its own or, or British citizens on the streets, whether it's in economic terms, basically across the board. 
other than where it would trigger a an immediate and damaging reaction, which is overt military action. Just one thing I wanted to bring up, uh, which actually relates to the title of your book. So Moscow rules, what drives Russia to confront the West? Now, maybe it's a bit academic to poke holes in this in a way, but I just wondered whether, particularly given the current administration across the pond in the United States, are we seeing a breakup of the West as it relates to Russia? Should we be thinking more in terms of how Europe relates to Russia? And what are the implications of that, if so? Well, you're right, of course. It, it, they are massive oversimplifications. If you say either Russia or the West, both of them need to be broken down into all of the many different layers of, of motivation and rationale for of taking different actions that exist on both sides because Russia itself isn't a, isn't a monolith. It doesn't consist of one person, President Putin. There are lots of different things going on. There are lots of different drivers for policy. But is the West less united in the, in the Trump era? Absolutely, yes. If you happen to look a couple of pages further into the book, you'll see that it's dedicated to all of those U.S. government career officials who are still trying to build and deliver a sensible policy about Russia while hoping that President Trump doesn't notice because as soon as he does notice anything that is, uh, you know, <laughs> that is a sensible approach to Russia, he tries to squash it. <sighs> So, yes, we, we are in a phase of the relationship now. We're in, in unprecedented territory where there's no telling just what the next Trump initiative might do. The one consistent pattern that we have seen is that all of the, the, the feverish striving for foreign policy initiatives that we've seen since even before his inauguration have been implementing long-term Russian policy aims for the United States. And they are mostly thwarted by the rest of the administration and the government, uh, but it's only a matter of time before some of them get through. And so what would a sensible, in inverted commas, approach to, to Russia today be? Well, let me take the the basic argument of the book. You, you recall we said earlier that we're proposing a new approach. One of the, the things that we think is absolutely critical is recognizing the state of conflict that, that we've also already talked about, recognizing the fact that Russia is not us, does not want to be like us, does not like us and does not particularly want to like us and thinks that it's already in a state of confrontation with the West. Recognizing that and realizing that it is the defining feature of the relationship would go a long way towards responding appropriately instead of constantly seeking for the reset, which is constantly disappointed. Now, when we say this, uh, people accuse us of being uh, Cold War warriors and thinking back to, um, to the way things would run in previous centuries. And we don't want to say that uh, we're now in a new Cold War. We think that's a, a flawed analogy because it's a far, far more dangerous period now than the late Cold War when things were hostile but stable and predictable. Now we have the hostility, but without those rules and parameters and boundaries that actually made things stable and predictable in, for example, the 1970s and the 1980s. So when people talk about the return to the Cold War as being a bad thing, we have to ask the question, well, which bit of the Cold War? Because things were stable and in the, in the later part of the Cold War, and it was possible to recognize the fact that the two systems were in fundamental opposition to each other, but still find a means of cooperating and coexisting without there being all-out war. What we don't want is a return to the earlier stages of the Cold War, the really dangerous bits. So the blockades of Berlin in 1948 and 1961, the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and a whole load of other um, less spectacular but still dangerous moments that actually defined the relationship. 
not to mention the major wars. There was Korea, there was Vietnam, there was this um, patchwork of uh, much smaller but still very, very nasty proxy wars across Africa and Asia and Latin America. That's the bit which we'd like, if possible, to avoid. And one of the ways of doing that is by early on recognizing exactly what the relationship between the West and Russia is and what it isn't. What prospect do you think there is for that shift in thinking? Oh, none at all. <laughs> we already see that we're back into the cycle. We see the, the Foreign Office, for example, making noises about, well, how can we actually get the relationship back on a stable footing by resetting? We hear um, requests for, well, how can we find ways of cooperating? Uh, as though nobody remembered the last time or the last five times that we did this and the results from it. Uh, I would have to be far more of an optimist than I am to think that anybody um, would read this book uh, realize that it's based on 30 years of studying exactly this problem and think that it might draw some some reasonable conclusions and then act on it. Because the pressures to, to push for a return to business as usual with Russia and therefore encourage Russia to think that actually outrageous behavior is perfectly fine are so strong that I don't think they'll be overcome by one book. Where are the chinks in the Russian armor in that sense? What levers can be pulled to sort of exert pressure on them back? Well, there is, a, of course, a significant disadvantage for um, Western countries looking for Russian vulnerabilities that Russia has considered itself to be at war for far, far longer than any of its adversaries. And so it has prepared itself as far as possible to withstand a protracted conflict. If we think, for example, of the sanctions that Western countries put in place uh, after, the, after the seizure of Crimea, Russia has now had a significant period to sanction-proof its economy. If we think, for example, of Western countries wanting to reach out to the Russian population to deliver to them a, a true picture of what's happening in the outside world as opposed to the one that they receive through Russian state media, well, again, Russia's already thought of that. They've recognized that vulnerability to Western influence and taken significant steps to curtail use of the Internet and put in place soft filters so that people don't actually uh, manage to receive that outside view. So in many of these domains, we're, we're fighting against the fact that uh, Russia has a head start, even in hard power, even in basic conventional military terms. They're now over 10 years into a massive and incredibly expensive program of rearmament and re-equipment and transformation of their military, whereas uh, most Western, uh, or particularly European militaries, only started slowly and belatedly to wake up to the challenge after 2014. However, there are ways and means of drawing it to Russia's attention that its actions are unacceptable, and that includes some of the sanctions that have not yet been taken. Sometimes push, people push for uh, stronger economic measures against Russia. They also push for, for example, a forward deployment of U.S. troops in the frontline states in order that they are better protected against any possible Russian adventurism. Now, we think that both of those measures are at the moment quite sensibly held in reserve because they're an indication of things that Russia would not like to happen, which would probably be precipitated by any further Russian aggression. Very much. Well, we're coming towards the end, but I just wanted to ask you, um, just more broadly, what's the reception of the book been like? I heard you had some uh, some interesting. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, some uh, the reception of the book it's been partly uh, entirely predictable and uh, you know, one or two mild surprises. Now, the the predictable bits are that you can't even write a book which is relatively polite about Russia like this one without being accused of Russophobia. So uh, there's been a lot of um, attacks and criticism and, uh, and trolling, as you would expect, um, related to the book. 
And a lot of um, what may be genuine criticism from people who either haven't read the book or, or uh, have read it but uh, not really paid attention to what it says, particularly the subtitle you mentioned earlier, what drives Russia to confront the West? So we have people saying, well, how can you say that Russia confronts the West when actually it's the West attacking Russia all the time? Uh, not having recognized that there's a significant chunk of the book that deals with exactly that issue. Right. So, yes, we, we, <clears throat> there's a fair amount of uh, kind of attacks and criticism. But the uh, the fun part, of course, was the book being used as bait in a, uh, a cyber attack against staff at Chatham House yeah. uh, just a few days after it was published. Um, people here got an email saying, here's a link to the to sample chapters from Keir Giles' book. Please let us know what you think followed up by a phone call or in some cases a, a series of insistent phone calls uh, from somebody who said they were my assistant, my non-existent assistant, in a thick Russian accent saying, how did you like the book chapters? Trying to get them to click on the link, which of course was malware to infect their computer. So in this case, it was um, the book itself probably wasn't an actual target. Very disappointing that it wasn't quite important enough for that. But instead, it's been uh, been used as a means of attacking Chatham House as a whole. But as for the official Russian reaction, it's been very, very quiet. Uh, a copy did get sent to the, the Russian embassy because we were rather looking forward to their rant on their blog, which is always entertaining reading. But uh, they haven't bitten yet. Okay, well, we'll keep an eye out for that then. <laughs> but uh, Keir Giles, thanks so much for joining us today. No, thank you. That was interesting, Ben. All the Russia. Boku <laughs> <laughs> <Beaucoup> de Russia. Boku <laughs> de Russia. Yeah. Um, well, we've got, we've got to do a thank you. We have to do a thank we you go. before we go, indeed. Thank you so much to Mary in Dublin, who wrote us a lovely letter and sent us an amazing book. And I do want to make clear, because obviously I didn't, that I love Dublin and had a lovely time in Dublin. I just had a terrible flight. Yes, your, your airport experience ruined yeah. what was an otherwise wonderful weekend. Yeah. It was very much one particular airline who will remain nameless for legal reasons. Yeah. But <laughs> rather than Dublin itself. But thank you so much. That's yeah, it's very nice. It's very really kind. You. And it was so nice to hear about how you how you walk the hills around Dublin <laughs> yeah. listening to undercurrents. It's kinda of wonderful. Yeah. It's kind of nice I know. It's especially us sitting here and made us like, feel all warm and fuzzy. Dark studio thinking <laughs> <laughs> Is anyone actually gonna listen Is to anybody, this? Are we just in a basement <laughs> talking to ourselves? But no we're not because Mary in Dublin is listening. So thank you very much. Yeah. And if anyone else wants to get in touch with this and tell us where they listen to undercurrents as or as send us books. We or like send books. Us books. Love a good book. Um, then, uh, then please do get in touch. Yeah, we also like chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but that's us done for this week. Um, we'll be back in two weeks with more exciting interviews. Um, I'm going off to the International Studies Association conference next week. Where is it this year? Hawaii. Toronto. Gosh. Toronto, Hawaii next year. Hawaii. Ne oh, that was Hawaii a joke. That was an actual year. joke. And you're going to Toronto Hawaii next year. this year. Toronto next week. And so hopefully I'll be catching up with uh, some of the authors that have written for International Affairs and we'll be able to bring you some really interesting interviews from there and also more from Chatham House. Excellent. Yeah. And maybe next time you hear from us, we'll have Brexited. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows what will happen? We've done our no-deal preparations. We know that whatever <laughs> happens, there will be an episode of Undercurrents. 
<laughs> Which is obviously Coming what you're you really in the first worried week about. Of April. <laughs> <laughs> Will there be an undercurrent? <laughs> Never mind blood and medicine. Um, <laughs> oh, anyway, great. so. In the meantime, I'm Ben Horton. I'm Agnes Frimston, and you've been listening to Undercurrents. <laughs>